You guys love me? All right. I asked it in advance. <laughs> because I'm going to take on a big challenge today because I really felt this was a way to handle this as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, I want to cover all of chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark today. <laughs> so it's bad when your wife is laughing in the front row. But it's going to work. It's going to work. I've strategically planned it so that it can work. And so I want to cover all of chapter 13 because really it, it's really one topic. Um, however, the topic is huge, but I want to handle it together so that we kind of get the big picture. I could have broken it into pieces, but if we're broken into pieces, then we can't kind of see the big picture. And, and I, you know, interesting, we can read Mark 13 in about five minutes. And so it was intended to be understood in one picture, but when we expand upon it, because Mark 13 um, is, uh, you know, the, the Bible's not written, under, let me explain something to you. I shouldn't chase these rabbit trails, but I need to. The Bible's not written as a textbook. Sometimes, sometimes we misunderstand that. The Bible's not written um, as most of it. The, the, some of the epistles are called didactic literature, which means they're teaching literature. But most of the Bible is written in poetic language. It's written in prophetic language. And so you've got to do some interpretation. And what does this really mean? And you've got to take something that's given here and then understand it in light of the entire um, Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so when we do that, like Mark 13, what it really does is it kind of opens up little windows all the way through Mark 13 that then shoots you all the way across the whole Bible to give you one big picture. Because Mark 13 is talking about this, this um, really enormous topic of this. What's ahead next on God's calendar? Um, and not only what's ahead next in the calendar, but, but the, the return of Christ coming to the world. You know, see, Jesus came once, but he's coming back again. And chapter 13, that's what it's dealing with. And so I want to kind of look at this um, as in this uh, chapter 13 and as a big picture, but then understand that it kind of opens up little windows but talk about big events. And so we can't take a ton of time to look at all those big events, um, but we're just going to kind of jump around. So I'm going to challenge you up front before I tell you this. We're going to start in 13, so you're going to keep your finger there because then we're going to shoot to about four or five other places in the Bible in the next 30 minutes. Ready? Are you ready with me? Yes. Some of you did the, the Tough mutter run lately. It was challenging, right? You got ready. They said, go. So what we're going to do right now. We're going we're gonna to go. So chapter 13, I try not to talk too fast, but chapter 13, uh, starting, I just want to look at, at uh, what's happening here. Let's set the stage this way. Jesus comes to this topic of, of what's ahead. As he's spending some time with his disciples, they've just left the city of Jerusalem. They're stopped. On, on a mountain, and they're looking at the temple. And there's an interaction with Jesus and the disciples. And I want to read that interaction. And so, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, here's his interaction with the disciples. He says, As he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful blessings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So what's going on here? The disciples were looking at this beautiful temple. 
And I want to put this in perspective because this temple is incredibly magnificent. This is the second temple that was built. They had Solomon's temple that was built, destroyed. Now they built a second temple and it's there on the Temple Mount on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And it was this incredibly magnificent structure. It's built on top of this mountain and it had massive stones that were built as its foundation. Matter of fact, the stones, to put it in perspective for you, were stones as large kind of like as, as boxcars from a train. Huge stones. Just imagine that. You know, sometimes in our days of technology, things don't impress us anymore. But these gigantic stones, when they didn't have bulldozers, then they didn't have cranes, they built these, this incredible complex out of these box car-sized stones. And then, as you were looking at it from a distance, they had most of the, the temple, these nine impressive gates, and the gates and the temples were covered with plates of gold and silver and bronze. And historians say that when the sun would shine um, on the temple, that, the, that those, those plates were polished, and that the sun would shine would be so bright that you'd actually have to shield your eyes from the, from, the, from the radiance that came off of the temple. So they're looking at this thing that day. Maybe they're kind of squinting in the sun because, the, because this, this illuminated building on top of, of Mount Moriah is there, and it's just massive stones, and they're looking at this incredible structure. It's so impressive that the disciples, who had probably been there multiple times, look at it and they say, they say wow, what an impressive building. you know. And it was. The temple was considered one of the great wonders of the Roman world, and it took 46 years to build. I'm 48 years old. So that seems like a lifetime to me, because it is. 46 years they worked on building this impressive, beautiful stone. They looked at that. But when they, Jesus talked, when they talked to Jesus about this great building, Jesus then kind of changes direction in his thinking. And he looks down the road to the future, and he talks about the temple, and he says that the temple would be destroyed... And not only would you, do you know, we think of that, oh, it's just a building. No. When the temple was destroyed, it meant that the center of Jewish life and religion, because the, their, their, their life and the religion were completely inseparable, that would all come crashing down. And when we come to Mark chapter 13, in the first half of Mark 13, what Jesus is doing is he's foretelling the events that would take place to bring about the destruction of the temple. And I'm not going to read them all for you today, but I'm going to tell you what verses they are. And, and you, can, you can notice them as I'm, as I'm talking about them. He says, these are the things that are going to happen um, leading up to the destruction of the temple. He says, first of all, that there's going to be wars and, and earthquakes and famines, that these things would come and they would increase all before the temple was destroyed in verses 7 and 8. And then he moves on and he said, before it happens, he says that, that you as Christian people following after Jesus are going to be persecuted. In fact, you're... Parents are going to turn against you. Your brothers and sisters are going to turn against you. Leaders in the church world will turn against you. You'll be persecuted, he says in verses 12 and 13. Then he says in verse 14 that something was going to happen called the abomination of desolation would be established. And they understood what that meant. Because that was wording right out of the, of the prophetic literature from the prophet Daniel. When he describes a time that this figure, this person would come, who would desecrate the temple, would abolish daily sacrifices there, and set himself up as God within the temple. He says, that's going to happen first. And then Jesus says, also before it happens, many false prophets, false Christs, would arise and say, I'm the Christ, come out here, I'm the Christ, come out here, before the day of the destruction, in verses 21 and 22, before the temple's destroyed. He said, all that's going to happen. Now here's the reality, you can check it in your history books. History tells us that all of these things occurred before the temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. That there were 
unbelievable famines and unbelievable earthquakes that there was that when the Romans overtook the temple that what they did is they that they sacrificed swine in the altar and they set up false gods within the temple that all the things they predicted that there was great persecution against the Christian church all these things did happen in AD 70 under the Romans they came and they completely decimated the, t- the temple now understand me today that was what Jesus was specifically addressing in the first half of Mark chapter 13 he was specifically relating to the downfall and the destruction of the temple and the sacrificial system, saying it's all going to come to an end. However, you need to understand something. This section of Scripture is what we call prophetic foreshadowing. It's prophetic foreshadowing. What that means is that it's where this event that's described, this one event, is a foreshadowing of another event that's going to come later. And we see this throughout Scripture, that certain events, they're prophesied about, and they happen, and they have, they're fulfilled, but then there's another fulfillment of that same thing later in a greater extent. And that's what this is here, this prophetic foreshadowing. So what we find in this is that these series of events pertaining to the destruction of the temple are a picture of another future event. And in this case, they're the events leading up to the return of Christ coming back to earth. And we know this because the rest of Scripture reveals that. And because in this section, what Jesus does after he talks about the events is then he moves on to talk about in the second half of chapter 13 what his future return would look like. You see, Jesus made a promise to his disciples, and he's making it right here as he's teaching them in Mark 13. He made a promise to his disciples, and he makes a promise to us that he was on earth at one time, that he was going to leave, but that he would come back to earth. And that's what he's looking to when he says in verse 26 of Mark 13, look what he says. He says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And in many other places in Scripture he made this promise. He said, I'm going to come back. Now, let's understand something. He's saying this to a group of people that are standing looking him in the eye. He's saying, I'm going to come back. And it probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to them. Just days before his crucifixion and days before his resurrection, he basically is saying to them this. He says, you know what? I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to go away. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But then I'll be back. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to establish my rule and my reign on earth. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that I am Lord. But Jesus knew that and he's... He's indicating that. He's alluding to that here. He's trying to give them the the idea of what's ahead, but he understood what was ahead for those people in just even the next coming days. He knew that what was in store for himself and what was in store for his followers in just the very next week after he said this. So what he's saying is he's letting them know in advance, listen, don't worry. It might get rough for a while. And he's alluding back to verses 11 and 12. It might get back to a while. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be challenged because of being my follower. But I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and I'm going to take you to a better place. And church, we need to stop there and think about something. Jesus knew what was in store for them and he knows what's in store for us. So he makes the same promise to us. We don't look him in the eye the way they did, but he's saying to us, listen, I'm coming back. That I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also, he said in John's Gospel. You see, someday Jesus is coming back to this earth. And we always think about the fact that he came as a baby in a manger. But he is the next thing on the calendar of God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today through, Mark, uh, the, the, through the Gospel of Mark chapter 13 
is I want to answer some questions about Jesus' return. Questions that I think that as we live in the reality of the fact that he will come back should be the questions you're asking. And if you're not asking, I hope I spur you to begin to ask them of yourselves. And so they're going to be touched on in Mark 13, but then they're going to be expanded elsewhere in the scripture. So again, we're going to keep our finger in Mark 13, and then we're going to look some other places. All right? So here's the first question that we need to think about relating to this whole topic of Mark 13. It's this. When will Jesus return? When's he going to come back? Well, here's the deal. People have been trying to figure this one out ever since the day he left. The disciples thought he left and he was going to come right back. They thought that they wouldn't even die before he came back and established his kingdom on earth. Um, but were they right? No, they were wrong. That was 2,000 years ago. You know, um, there's only one right answer to when Jesus is going to come back. And the answer is this. We don't know when. When the, when, the, when the gospel writer of Matthew wrote about this exact same event, that day where they looked at the temple and Jesus talked about the, about the destruction of it, in the recording in Matthew, the disciples flat out asked Jesus. They said, when will you come back? And this was his answer to them. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he said, it's not for you to know. In fact, Jesus says that neither himself nor the angels know when he will return, but only God the Father knows. Look in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. It's what he's talking about. He says, But of that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now some people, some scholars say, well now Jesus has ascended to the right hand and he probably knows the date. Well it's possible, but it doesn't really matter. At that time, Jesus walking as a man on earth, um, fully God, fully man, said of the day of his return, he says, you know what, of that day and that hour, no one knows. He says, the angels don't know, and the Son doesn't know, only God the Father knows when he'll come back. So friends, it's pretty clear. We can't set a date and say, Jesus is coming back on this day, or even during this year. And the reason I point that out to you today is this. Christian people have been made to look like fools for generation after generation after generation for jumping on the bandwagon every time some guy can kind of take the Bible, he's a, a Greek or a Hebrew scholar, and he takes it and he begins to dissect everything and begin to say, well, this means this and this means this. This means he's going to come back. I remember this from New Christian, 88 Reasons, Jesus is going to come back in 1988. And it didn't happen. And then he wrote a new book, 89 Reasons Why He's Going to Come Back in 89. Who was the guy just about a year ago? I should remember his name. I should have Googled it. The guy from California. Who, remember who I'm talking about? This guy who made national attention, had billboards all over the nation saying Jesus is going to return. And guess what? Jesus didn't return. And what was his name? Campman. Um, and, and it made, made everybody, everybody who followed him look like they were foolish. You know what? We don't know the time or the hour. It says the angels don't know. So friends, we can't put a date I want Jesus coming back. People have done it, and to this point, anybody who set a date has been wrong. You know what? Don't get freaked out by movies like 2012 that say the Mayan calendar says this. Guess what? If, if Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, and the angels don't know when he's coming back, neither Nostradamus nor the Mayans know when, when the whole end's coming. Nobody knows. So don't even waste your time worrying about that stuff. I see it too often. People freak out about it. Don't worry about it. Because no man knows the times or the hours. Scripture does say 
that what he says in Mark here is, he says it like we can, we can get a sense that the season is coming. And he talks about Mark, and you can look at it later, um, in, it's like chapter verse 30, he talks about it's like a, a tree that's, becoming, that's beginning to blossom, a fig tree. And you can kind of tell it's going to get figs on it because it's, it's becoming, the leaves are becoming tender and, and the buds are forming. So you can kind of tell the end is coming, but he says no man knows what it's, what's happening. He says there's going to be signs. There's going to be increase in war and increase in calamity. That's referring back to 7 and 8. He said that's going to happen before the fall of the temple. And in this dual application of the prophecy, it's saying that's going to increase before the end. And a lot of people look at our world today and say, well, it sure seems like there's an increase in calamity. It seems like there is. I don't know for sure if there is. What I do know is we have incredible technology now that when there's an earthquake in China, we hear about it today. And so maybe it's getting worse. It seems like it might be. But he says that these things will increase. But he says, but that's not the end. That's the point he's making. No man knows the day or the hour. But we do know something about when he will return. That's more than just vague, kind of like it might be getting more. And here's what we do know about the, about the time he will return. It will be at the perfect time. That's when we know it will be. It will be at the perfect time. You see, scoffers have always and will always say that Jesus is not coming back at all. They'll live like he's not coming back at all um, because they don't have any sense that they can meet him today. Um, and they've been saying for 2,000 years, yeah, he's, he's never going to show up again. But the Apostle Peter, I think he got sick of listening to that. And so he wrote something in Second Peter, and I want you to, again, keep your finger in Mark 13, but flip your Bible now to Second Peter chapter 3. If nothing else, you're going to get good Bible exercise today and learn how to find verses in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3, near the end of your New Testament, starting in verse 3. He's talking about the fact that people say Jesus isn't coming back. He says now, verse, chapter 3, verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Is that a capital H there? It is. It's talking about Christ's return. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His words, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And the Lord is not slow about His promise, and it's a promise about His coming, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Apostle Peter looks at this and he says, listen, Jesus is coming back all right, but he's coming back according to God's perfect timing. And the way he explains that, he says this, he says God's not being slow about sending Jesus back because God doesn't look at time the way we look at time. He says to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so to, you know, to us, you know, to me, 48 years seems like a long time. But to God, a thousand years is like a day, so my life is like about five minutes. You know, and so, so we look at it and say, look at when's he going to come back? Jesus promised 2,000 years ago he's going to come back, but Peter wants us to understand God doesn't operate with time the way we operate with time. 
And he says he's not being slow, but rather he's being gracious. He said he's not slow about his return, he's being gracious about his return. In verse 9, he says he is give, he's giving people time to repent. What's that mean? He's giving people time on this earth who don't know them, who are walking in self-willed ways, walking where they're their own gods, to recognize that they need Him and to change direction. Repentance means changing direction. Change direction and begin to follow Him as their Lord and Savior. So he said he's not being slow about his return, rather he's being patient so that the good news of Christ's salvation can be spread across the globe and He'll give more people time to respond. Because it says... In, in Second Peter here, that he doesn't wish for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now that throws a, ge- a wrench in people's gears who say God just selects certain people to die and certain people to live. Because he says it's his wish that all would come to repentance and that none would perish. So, when will Jesus return? We don't know, right? But we do know this. It's at God's perfect time. You think, if you trust God at your soul, do you think you can trust Him to also come back at the right time? In one of the epistles, one of the, one of the writers of the epistles ended his epistle this way. It was the Apostle Paul. He said, Maranatha, even so, even so, come Lord Jesus. And you know what he was saying? He's saying, I know it's your perfect time, but I wish it was today. And friends, that's the way we're supposed to really live. That we don't know when, but it could be today. And I don't know about you. There's people say this statement once in a while. I've heard it for years. They say, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one, gets, no one wants to get on a bus today. If the bus came today, I'm getting on. Okay? That's the way I want, I'm living. I, I'm not lying. That's the way I'm living. If the bus comes today, I want to get on. And so when's he going to come back? I don't know, but it's in his perfect timing, and I sure kind of hope his perfect timing is really soon. So, that's the first question. When will he come? We don't know. Second question is this. This one's a little more complex. What will his return look like? And I found that as I explain this to people over the years, Suddenly I watch light bulbs go on because they're confused because, again, the Bible's not written like a textbook that you can just read. Oh, second coming of Christ, this is how it works. You've got to kind of draw different things together to understand what he means by the second coming. And the, the simplest way to understand it is this. The second coming really has two distinct parts to it. The first part is Jesus coming for his church. And we have a, a word for that, not a biblical word, but a, a word that describes it. And anybody know what that word is? The rapture. God snatching his church up. So the first part of his second coming is Jesus coming for his church. Then there's the time of tribulation, seven years of, of great wrath being poured out in there. The reason for the, for, the, for the rapture was God is rescuing his people before the time of his wrath is poured out. And then at the end of that seven year, what happens is that Jesus then comes with his church, bringing judgment and establishing his rule on the earth. So let's look at some scriptures that, de- that describe these events. First of all, in Mark 13, you, you still got your finger there, right? Yep, good. Mark 13, all we have is an allusion to it in Mark 13, but it's, it's there. Remember, Jesus has given this whole big picture in one little discourse called the Olivet Discourse. You ever hear that before? You're looking at today, Mark 13 is the Olivet Discourse. He's giving this one little teaching, and it's got all these little statements that are pregnant with all this stuff. That you just, one little saying takes you all the way across the Bible to, to have to explain it. And so in Mark 13, 20... He's talking about, in this section, about this time of great tribulation that's going to come, starting in verse 19. And in verse 20 he says, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, 
he shortened the days. Now let's say that's a um, a little tiny snippet that's referring to something that's explained elsewhere in Scripture. So keep your finger in thirteen and flip with me to First Thessalonians chapter four. Are you still with me? I know I'm talking a hundred miles an hour today, but I'm trying to get it done before you all fall asleep on me. There's no Packer game today, so we can stay all day, right? Hey, I like hearing that. So. Keeping your finger in, first, in, in, in chapter 13. Now let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, because it's going to give clarity to what Jesus was alluding to in Mark 13, 20. And this is going to talk about that day that we call the rapture. So, starting in verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So we as Christians have hope for those who have fallen asleep, in other words, who have died. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, And with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, what is this? It's a picture of what theologians call the rapture. The taking away, the snatching up, of believers to be with Jesus. And what it says here is those who have died as Christians, already passed away, and those who are alive and serving Jesus on the day when he returns, for this first part of his return, will together at the same time um, rise up to meet Jesus in the air, and then they will always be with him forever. So the first part of his second coming is when he gathers together all the people who serve him and have served him, and brings them up to beat him in the air. Now, anybody a few years back watch the movies or read the books, the Left Behind series? Some of you guys did. Um, some of you loved them, some of you hated them. Suzanne likes reading big, thick books. I don't get it. And so she read them all. And uh, I started reading one, and I put it down, and I was like, there's no way. And so, and so uh, um, anyways, that was a whole series kind of depicting, trying their best to, some Christian people trying to predict or, pre- or portray what these events will look like. And as you remember from the movie, I watched the movie, because it's easier than the book, um, you know, um, the airplane pilot that it's about, I don't remember what his name is, but he's flying the plane, and also, all these people disappear in a plane, you know, and then their clothes is left behind, and he gets home, and he runs home to Chicago to his family, and, and his family's all gone, and they're all believers, and the whole story is about what happens afterwards. But the picture that starts with, the, with, the, with what they're talking about here. This day and time, the first part of Christ's second coming, and there's a reason we're going to say why he does it this way, um, because he's going to come back with this group in a while, but he snatches them away before he's going to pour out wrath. You see, scripture, scripture teaches that believers go to be with the Lord, and then, after that, a great time of judgment and tribulation is going to come upon the world. And Scripture teaches that that comes upon the world um, to judge, but that God, Scripture says, has not destined His children for wrath. And so He's going to cause us to, to escape wrath. So look at Mark chapter 13, verse 19. Talking about this time of great tribulation. 
It says, for those, day, it, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. And then 20 goes on to say what we said, and those days will be shortened for the elect. So what do we see here? God removes His people from the earth so that they will not have to go through this time of His wrath being poured out upon the earth to bring judgment to mankind. Now I want to, before we explain something else, I want to say, say something right here. The church world has made a huge mistake over the its entire time it's been in existence. Matter of fact, religion does this to people. Um, people want to look at events, they want to look at details, and they want to say, this is what I believe, you don't believe me, so therefore you're my enemy. Understand that in, this, in all these things we're talking about end times, this is mainly prophetic literature, that we have to try to interpret. And, and godly men and women for thousands of years have read the exact same book, studied the exact same biblical original languages, and come up with little slightly differing opinions on how these things are going to work. Now, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but then they'll say, well, I think that this tribulation will be this long amount of time. Or I think the rapture will occur just before the tribulation. Or I think the rapture will occur in the middle of the tribulation. Or I think the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation. Can I tell you something? Don't get in those arguments. You can have your opinions. And what I try to do, and this is, you want to know my understanding of theology or how I try to understand it? I try to take the most basic view that has the least amount of holes in it. And so sometimes I, I understand their points and I say, I understand why they say that. But because I see this and this, I got to lean this direction. And in this kind of stuff of setting dates and saying how long periods of time are, it's not just written out so we can just go to chapter 7, verse 13 and read it. You've got to kind of bring it all together. And so this is the best understanding of how this stuff happens. So we have this rapture of the church, and then we have this time of God's wrath being poured out for seven years. And the thing that I think is the most important to get out of all this idea of the rapture is that we don't know when it's going to happen. Just like we don't know when Christ's return is, we don't know when it's going to happen. That, um, that what we need to understand and what God wants us to realize is that it could occur at any moment. Now the word we use for that is imminency. It's imminent. It could happen at any time. Meaning that, that there is no reason why God could not rapture the church today. Don't know if He will, but I know He could. And then that would usher in seven years of, of, uh, of tribulation. And so the imminency of the rapture is a key to our really living, with, living out our Christian life. Because if we just think, hey, I can go along merrily however I want, and there's, there's, there's just not that possibility that just may be the day, sometimes it could maybe loosen us up a little bit to say it doesn't really matter how I live. Especially listen to me, teenagers. You guys think you have the whole life ahead of you. You think you're bulletproof, and you think you know, that, that uh, all this stuff is somewhere way out there. You're going to blink your eyes twice and you're going to be as old as me. You know? I was your age yesterday, it seemed like. And, you know, I was going to point somebody else and say they were my age yesterday. But I won't do that. I'd probably get in trouble. But, um, <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, see, I do, I do learn. You get, <laughs> very, thank you. I get a pat on the back later. Um, and so, so anyway, um, what I want you to understand, kids, this is the reality. Jesus could come back today. The first part of the second coming could be before I'm done, before I'm done with my sermon. It's imminent. 
Jesus could return at any, at any moment. And Jesus' followers, his 12 who, who walked with him every single day and understood him, I have to believe, way better than we did, than we do, they thought they would never die by the grave. They thought he was going to come back any time in their lifetime. That's what his intention was. That this could be the day. And he wants us to live in that tension. That today could be 1 Thessalonians 4, could be lived out. That the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, with the, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That it could be today. And so that's the first part of Christ's second coming. At some point before this time of great tribulation, Jesus is going to snatch the dead and the living in Christ up to heaven. So you got the first half of the second coming. Let's look at the second half of the second coming. First of all, we don't, we don't know when it's going to happen. First half is, but at some point there's going to be this rapture of the church, then tribulation, and then after that is the second part of his, tri- of his coming, and the second part is this, him coming with his church. The first part he came, he came for his church. He came and he took his church. And the second part, he now comes back to earth with his church. And that's the distinction we want to look at here today. So turn your Bible to Revelation, all the way to the back. Revelation chapter 19. Coming with his church. Revelation 19, last chapter of your Bible, starting in verse 11. And this is the reason, I'll tell you that, this is the reason why I believe that Jesus, the rapture of the, the, rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation, is because of Revelation 19. Because we're going to see something here. He's coming with his church back to the earth. So the church has to be with him first. So, Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, And I saw heavens opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, or crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So who is it talking about? Jesus. is a description of Christ, how he's described all through Scripture. In verse 14, Listen to this. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse, on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress and the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What do we see here? Here we see a picture of Jesus coming with his church. After the tribulation time, Jesus comes, says, riding on a white horse, followed by what here? It says, an army clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Look at the verses just ahead in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. It's talking about the thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where, where believers celebrate in heaven um, when they're together. And look, look at the description of the, of the church here. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to God. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride... Who's the Lamb? Jesus. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride... Who's His bride? The church. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of His saints. So he's saying here, 
that the bride comes with Jesus to return to earth. That Jesus returns with an army who have been, who are, who are described as the church. They're the saints who are, who are dressed in the righteous acts, the fine linen, white and clean. So Jesus is coming with an army back to judge. Well, who's that army? It's the army. It's the church that's been raptured out of the world earlier and was, was taken with Christ and now is coming with Christ to the earth. And he returns this time, though, it says, as a conquering king. Not to die for, as a sacrifice. The first time he came as a baby in the manger to live a perfect life, be a sacrifice, die on the cross. But he comes a second time, not this time to die, but to rule. And it says his sword is used to judge, to strike down those who oppose him. And he will triumph over his enemies. See, when Jesus returns with his church, he will establish his rule, and then every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus will rule for all eternity. So there's a day coming when he'll prove he is really who he says he is, when all the scoffers who say that he's not who he is will finally understand that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he comes back with his church to establish his rule on the earth. So, that makes sense? The two part of his return. He, take, he comes back. We don't know when he's going to come back. But he's going to first take his church up to heaven. Then he's going to come back with his church to establish his rule on the earth. Now, briefly, there's one more question that we need to then ask. That Mark 13 won't let us get past. And it's this. How then should we live in light of knowing that Jesus is coming back? And the answer is this from Mark 13. Be ready. How should we live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back? One of these days, it's imminent. The rapture could happen today. How should we live in light of that? Mark 13, starting in verse 33. It says, take heed. Well, look, look, starting in verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. No one knows when He's going to come back. But, verse 33, take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, so who's on a journey? God. Jesus went away. Who's in charge? Us. Assigning to each one of his, um, one of his task, also um, commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and you find yourself asleep. What I say to you, I say to you all, be on the alert. How should we live? We should be ready. But look what it says here. For the good servant... For the ones who are ready, the ones who, who are serving the Lord with all their hearts, he said, there's no fear. In fact, his return is something to look forward to. His return is a day of comfort. So you can honestly say, if the bus comes today, I want to get on. If you know you're walking in the right relationship with God, you say, even so, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And that's why the church has always called this idea called the blessed hope. That we're hoping for a day that no matter how bad today is, no matter what problems you're having in life today, if you're walking with Jesus, a day is coming when the trumpet of God is going to sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then those who remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and ever be in His presence. That that's a, a great promise, it's a great hope that we're supposed to, it says, comfort one another with these words. But it says, be ready because for the evil servants... For the ones who are, he's saying this, who aren't really walking with Christ, who aren't really serving Him, he says you got something to fear. 
because Jesus' return will be a return implementing judgment and punishment. And I know we don't like to talk about that very much, but the reality is, friends, a day is coming when the truth of God's Word will be realized, when heaven and hell will be more than something out there, that there will be the future will be now, and those, those realities will be today. And so we need to be ready. Be ready. How do we be ready? But we know that we've, that we've surrendered our life to Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. We surrender our lives to Jesus, and we live a life of surrender to Jesus. Don't be fooled into believing that just because one day I raised my hand in church, said a little prayer, that makes me all right. No, it's about a lifestyle. It's about a life devoted and committed to Jesus. He says if you're living like that, that your life today is about serving Him and not about serving everything in this world, that then when the trumpet blasts, He's going to take you to heaven. And that's a glorious, glorious hope to look forward to. Now, we take a breath. That was more words in 30 minutes than I've done in a long time. But, that's the big picture from Mark 13. Jesus painted this picture. The temple's going to be destroyed. It's a picture of what's going to come later. All this persecution, all these difficulties, all this stuff is going to happen before the Lord comes. But then at some point, when we don't know when, Jesus is going to come. He's going to snatch His church away. There's going to be tribulation. Then He's going to come back with His church. And He's going to establish His rule and reign for eternity. And we'll forever be with the Lord. That's what's next on the calendar for the church. That's what's next on the calendar for the world. And here's the awesome thing about being children of God. He told us in advance so that we can be ready, that we can live the way we want, that we can't be caught by surprise. So friends, you know what the deal is? Every single one of us needs to look at this reality that looms in front of us that could be today and say, God, am I really living the way you want me to live? And if I am, praise the Lord, Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. If I'm not, God, today I want to get my heart right with you. That makes sense? Would you stand with me this morning? Let's just close in prayer together today. Father, we've just taken off this huge chunk today. Tried in one message to, to run from Genesis to Revelation, kind of your entire teaching on, on what's, happened, what's going to come next, Jesus, in Mark 13, and tried to put it all into one picture. And God, here's my prayer, that every one of us in here would see that picture vividly in their mind. That, Lord, I know we we jumped around a bit today to paint that picture, but, Lord, I pray that right now the brush strokes of your word will begin to paint in our heart and our mind a picture of the reality of the future. That one of these days, and it could be today, you're going to blast the trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with you in the air. That's not pie in the sky. It's not fairy tale. It's not weird. That just as much as your word talks about the fact that you would come to earth and you came, and that the kind of life you would live and you lived it, and then it records the what went on in your church and it happened, that, Lord, the next event on your calendar is, is blowing the trumpet and bringing your church home. And God, I pray this for every person in this room. I pray that not one of us would be asleep spiritually. Not one of us would be deluded spiritually starting with me, God, that not one of us would be deluded into just settling for emptiness and religion instead of knowing that there's a reality and a vibrancy and an authenticity of a relationship with you. And that today, God, if our hearts are not right with you, if we're really not ready, that right now you would speak to our hearts.
that God we would hear your voice and we would want to with the act of our will respond to you today and ask you to come and to receive us as your own to forgive us of our sins and make us brand new and God even if for years and years we've lived in a, a church existence and a religion but God we know that we've drifted that today God I pray that you would speak so clearly to our hearts and our minds that we would not be deceived for one moment. But that, God, we would walk in a right relationship with you. That so if the trumpet does sound today, that we will be one of those who is caught up together in the air.